Welcome to Shared Instance, a podcast on iOS development by three iOS developers in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Sam Corder. I'm Alex Argo. And I'm Alex Robinson. This is episode 19. All right, guys. So uh, big news in Swift this week, right? Oh, yeah. Big time. This Taylor Swift stuff is it's pretty crazy. And of course, we're talking about there's this cool library that someone wrote called Taylor. It's a uh, HTTP server, so you can start writing your uh, web apps. It's it's pretty new and uh, looks like looks like it'll be evolving over time. But there's a there's a cool video about this 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 kid writing this library, and of course it's the most ungoogleable Swift library ever. Has anyone seen the video? I watched the video. Uh, it's a it's a short lightning talk from the Swift Summit uh, hosted on Realm.io. And it's it's a pretty good video. It's it's kind of a proof of concept at this point. Uh, it's one of the interesting points with it with Taylor as a Swift library is it has access to all the Cocoa frameworks, so you can get to core image and various other things to do some interesting manipulations. Uh, of course, the demo involved applying a core image filter to a photo of Taylor Swift. Nice, of course. <laughs> And someone also suggested you could run it inside of an iOS app as a alternative to WK WebView. Hmm. Not sure if that's a good idea or not, but yeah, maybe if it's, it's a possible. little more mature. <laughs> I could see maybe using something like that because we did have the HTTP server library, but that's really kind of fallen out of maintenance these days. So maybe this could be used for mock services, or am I wrong? Like local mock services. It probably could. And keep in mind, too, this predated WWDC. So uh, this was done before Swift 2 and the announcement for Swift going open source. Well, and the, and the guy says he's going to rewrite a bunch of stuff. So I wouldn't try to go and start using your projects yet, but maybe it's something to watch out yeah. for. Definitely good to look at as a proof of concept, and I think we'll see alternatives come up later on, uh, especially when it Swift is ported to Linux. Yeah, once we see that thing go open source fully, then uh, I expect to see several frameworks. So I guess we uh, had a, some other Swift news this week. Yeah, that was interesting. I was curious what your guys' take on that was. So. Taylor Swift wrote an open letter to to Apple, or someone, one of her minions did, uh, complaining about the the terms for the Apple Music trials. Uh, she published it on Sunday, and you know it seems like within hours, or at least that same night, Eddie Q was tweeting that they were changing their policy. I don't know. What do you guys What do you guys think of that? Well, the original policy was what that they would not pay royalties for anybody doing the first three-month trial? Is that right. what it was? Yep. Which seems kind of like a bum deal for the artists. Yeah. it's uh, Apple's trying to maybe profiteer a little bit. Yeah, and the fact that they kind of changed their mind so quickly kind of shows you that there is at least some 
hesitation to even do that in the first place internally, or else they would have kind of held their ground, I imagine. And they definitely were prepared to reverse their position, and that that was probably not a a small financial impact. Maybe small to Apple, but you know, yeah, probably talking yeah. millions of dollars of revenue. Yep, they're loads of cash. Yeah, which that might not be that small to Taylor Swift, but your average indie develop indie music artist out there, yeah, that's gonna hit them a bit. Well, since since we're not like experts in the music industry, uh, what do you guys think would be some good things to have Taylor Swift write open letters to Apple about, kind of to ve- to benefit developers? Can you guys think of anything good? <laughs> well, my vote would be to have one of our listeners write an open letter to Swift to Taylor Swift to have her write an open letter to Apple to have our podcast featured. I think that's a great idea. <laughs> and in lieu of that, you can just go, go give a, give us a five star rating in iTunes. We'd be okay with that too. That's, um, that's definitely second best. Yeah. Is there anything else big? Maybe get rid of sandboxing in the Mac app store. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Something good? Maybe revive the Mac App Store? Yeah. Get us a uh, Watch OS 2 beta today? Yeah, that would be nice, but it, it may just be broken as badly as the first Watch OS beta was, so we'll see. Yeah. So today we did get some beta 2 releases, just not Watch OS. Yeah, we got everything but watchOS. Now the configuration file for beta 2 is out there. But it does not work. Or at yeah, least... it, it seems like what happened at first was any developer who was on iOS 9 and had an Apple Watch was getting the update if they checked. So I, I think that is why they pulled it, if not some other reason. So hopefully next podcast we'll have a sweet beta 2 or 3 of, of the of watchOS 2 that will make everyone's watches behave much better. Yeah, it's a little bit early to say right now, but I think my battery life is a bit better. That's good to know. I'm updating all of my devices as we podcast, so (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) What could go wrong with that? Yeah. Well, I'm not updating my Mac, just just to be clear. I did get as far as downloading the new Xcode, but haven't opened it up yet. I'm hoping I'll be able to inspect variables in the debugger without it crashing. Not really. I didn't have many, many problems actually doing stuff in Xcode. But I was doing some Swift code and would get crashes there somewhat frequently. I was getting is that, uh, is that different than normal or <laughs> <laughs> well I didn't really jump into the one dot two days, so I don't know how much different it is. I don't think it's, I actually It's not had too a, bad now. I'm not sure if I had a source kit crash on one two. I did get some weird behavior where I had both versions of Xcode open and I was getting warnings about Bitcode and Xcode six while I was not doing anything in uh, Xcode 7. So that was fun. The, the warning was also 
an interesting one too. They basically said, oh, since one of your libraries is not Bitcode, we're just going to ignore that you have Bitcode turned on. Yeah, that's um, something to be leery of, I guess, in the future. If you have a closed source third-party library that doesn't get updated very often. Yeah, I've got to imagine most of the third parties will get, get their libraries updated in the coming months, but it's... I don't think Apple's forced us to have like new versions of code for everything since the 64-bit transition, and that took like years for them to actually enforce. Well... How long do you really think it took? Because they introduced the 5S, what, almost about a year and a half ago? And then it was January of this year when they finally said everything needed to be 64-bit? So that's... I thought it was about, yeah, about a year and a half. Yeah, so 5S about a year and a half, and then about half a year, six months ago, they said, hey, it all has to be 64-bit. So that's about a year lead time, which is... That's doable. Well, for a watch OS, you don't... I mean, you get four months or however long until the, <laughs> the new OS comes out, so... Yeah, you don't have any time. Hopefully, you don't have that much third-party code embedded in your watch app. Although, if, you're, if you have a watch, watch kit app for some type of, you know, existing app, that could be a problem. Yeah, I know right now I use a third-party library, the uh, Yap database, and... That needs to have Bitcode turned off right now because of the way it links to the C++ runtime. Hmm. Yeah. I imagine they're, they're going to fix that in the future. Hopefully they can. Yeah. It, it was, I remember, I, I logged the issue on GitHub for it and uh, somebody re- responded that with iOS 7 and up, I think it is, you can ignore that. You don't have to have that particular linker flag. Okay. So, but I'm thinking at work, we use a third-party analytics package and we're even kind of prohibited right now to upgrade into their latest version because of the way they changed it. And so that could pose a problem in the future. I think Google Analytics was one that gave me trouble with the 64-bit transition. So I wouldn't be surprised if they behind a little bit as well when those type of companies try i mean if you just are getting a static library or or a framework that's compiled uh a lot of times they're trying to hide some of that stuff so it takes them a while to get things up to date and tested at those kind of big companies we'll see how long that all takes but hopefully it's soon yeah now i'm wondering i haven't seen anything about uh articles or anything about publishing stuff about the format of Bitcode, but, you know, Java is very easily decompiled. So I wonder how easy it would be to decompile Bitcode. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure there's some enterprising hacker out there right now checking it out. Yeah, probably. We'll follow (laughs) follow up on that. Yep. So by far the biggest news of this week, in my opinion, was that Apple finally stopped selling the non-Retina iPad Mini. That is huge. There's no more non-retina devices that are being sold. Yeah, so it seems like iOS 9 is their last big push to get all these old devices up to something modern. 
off of iOS 7. And that's going to be it for him. Maybe. We'll see. I don't know. Alex, how long do you think will we'll go before we don't have to actually support the, the non-retina devices anymore? I think right now it will auto-generate your 1x assets, so theoretically go ahead and ignore that if you wanted to. I just mean like testing and all that stuff. Like how long until they're actually going to drop support and we don't have to even worry about it? I would guess it would be iOS 10. I think that the big hang-up is the academic space and and kids that have the hand-me-down devices or schools that bought these low-end devices in bulk uh, to be more cost-effective. I think those are going to stay in circulation for a while, but I can't imagine OS X is going to be able to really run efficiently on that hardware. You mean iOS? iOS 10. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) Whatever they call it. iOS X, maybe? We'll see. That's going to be really confusing next year. Yeah. Maybe that's why they need to bump uh, Mac OS up to version 11 so that we don't have to deal with that. I was actually really surprised that iOS 9 was going to continue to support things like the 5th gen iPod Touch and the 4S, because yeah, those that hardware is struggling with 7 right now. Well, it's It seems like they went to eight, a lot I mean. of trouble to do that. So it makes me wonder if, I mean, kind of like Mac OS X, there's been like two or three or even four updates where they've not dropped a single Mac from compatibility. Have we like gotten to a kind of a base amount of, of functionality so that we're not doing crazy things every year that require faster processors? I, I wonder if we just get the same devices updated for a couple years. I don't know. I mean, and even so, there were years where... Apple went with releases and they said, okay, this is actually going to be faster on your existing hardware. I know, uh, what was it? Tiger? Tiger and... Snow Leopard, maybe? Snow Leopard, yeah. I think, didn't they say that Snow Leopard will actually run faster than last year's operating system than Tiger? Yeah, I, I think there's definitely aspects of that, but at the same time... When you do get the newer hardware, as developers, we want to take advantage of that and do more with animations and video, um, have more things going on at once, multitasking. Uh, so it's kind of hard to to kind of address both both ends of that spectrum uh, when the spectrum's so wide. Yeah, it's like Android land. We're going to have to make sure we're coding and testing for all these low-end devices and checking to make sure our code runs fast on these old iPods and iPhones that we got laying around. Yeah, one of my key test devices is the iPod Touch because it's it's the lowest common denominator. Uh, it's pre-64-bit, so animations and other things run slower there than anywhere else. Yeah, I was actually... Uh working with one of my coworkers today trying to fight some performance issues on an iPhone 4S. We just did a rewrite of some of our OpenGL code, and I think he found 
kind of a bug that was causing some horrible performance and i think we've got it fixed but yeah yeah if if it wasn't for the testing on the 4s we wouldn't have even noticed that we were doing some really non-performant things yeah and that's still a significant chunk of users out there yeah and i i think that also impacts that overall adoption rate is when you start dropping off hardware there's going to be this section of the market you just can't upgrade and the hardware's not necessarily going to go out of circulation as fast as they would like. I also saw a headline today about the new C uh, two of iOS nine for devices that don't have enough space on them that it will actually reinst it'll delete your apps until it gets enough space and then reinstall those apps later. Yeah, it seems like a clever trick that'll probably be useful for updates. I wonder if if it'll be able to do that on the actual iOS 9 release. Probably not, but that'd be cool if it could. I assume that would be doing a backup and restore from iCloud, not a reinstall. Or maybe it saves the document folder. Yeah, I didn't see any specifics on how it actually does it, but I just thought... Oh, that's going to be great for getting some of these 8 gigabyte 4Ss up to 9. Sounds like it's something that Apple's been planning for a while, and hopefully it'll help us get lots of users on the latest OS, because that's what we all really want. Definitely. Something interesting, I, I haven't confirmed it yet, but according to the diffs between beta 1 and beta 2, one of the differences is it's missing reflection in beta 2 so the limited reflection api that was there for swift supposedly is gone in beta 2 maybe that means they're gonna give us a non-limited one in beta 3 or 4 or 5 or it could have just been broken in in beta 2 then yeah it could be it was easier just to take it out and fix it in beta 3 I wouldn't put too much too much thought into it, but uh, if if it is something they did intentionally, it'll be interesting to see why. Well, maybe we can get Taylor Swift to write a letter about that. That would that would be good. Yeah, get uh, first class reflection. <laughs> That's right, Swift. For for her, that might just mean a mirror. But anyway. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, did you guys see that Apple had this this feature a couple days ago about apps with with uh, great accessibility support? I did see that. That was pretty cool. Uh, yeah, they're they're definitely pushing uh, the voiceover apps. Uh, in a related story, they they're also partnering with schools in China to teach students how to use things like GarageBand, but also teach blind students how to use devices to get things done. That's interesting. Apple has always been favored by the vision-impaired community for their good support of uh, voiceover in general. Yeah, Android... They've only recently come up to par with what iOS can do, and they're still 
still a bit behind. Yeah, I remember uh, maybe it was two years ago at WWDC. It was one of the ones that I think all three of us were at. Uh, they had a big part of their keynote where they were showing uh, all kinds of vision impaired and handicapped people using iOS devices, and they did a kind of a big push for for all that all the accessibility stuff. They did a bunch of API updates that year too. I think. Have you guys uh, done it in your apps at all? At work, I have. Yeah, we just got done doing a big accessibility overhaul in one of our client apps. Yeah, I th- I think uh, developers in general they they hear yes, iOS has great accessibility support, and most of the time your app is just ready to go, and you don't need to do anything. But that's a a false belief because when you actually turn on accessibility on your phone and try to use your own personal app, you'll be surprised what people have to deal with if they can't see. Yeah, I think what Apple did right was you get a lot of stuff for free, um, but you do have to do some work to to get a great functioning uh, voiceover experience for users. I know early in the days of the App Store, before Apple even did that much of a push, we were, got, we were getting emails saying, oh, you're, and this is only, so I make card game apps and we have a decent amount of UI kit in our apps, which I guess other card games didn't. He's and got a bunch of emails along the lines of, oh, wow, he did so much work for accessibility to, to help us out. You're, you're almost there. Uh, can, can you finish it off? And we haven't gotten to it yet, and I really want to. Um, but I had done absolutely nothing and, you know, so much stuff just worked. Yeah, but let's take a step back real quick because a lot of times we say accessibility and and we automatically mean voiceover, but that's just one part of what's included as accessibility under iOS. Uh, there are several other styles or things. Um, there's things for people that have motion impairness, so you can actually have a separate little switch thing that the person can depress. And what happens is the OS will go through each control on your screen. And when the user wants to select that, they hit the switch. And so that's, uh, that's really interesting to me. It's, it doesn't take a lot of work to support that, I don't think. we. I haven't tackled that. Have you guys? Um, I haven't, but I think one of the nice things is that there's kind of like one API, and it enables pretty much all the different t- types of accessibility options that there are out there. Yeah, I think most things you just need to check your app to see if they work. Um there's things for people that just have a minor vision impairment or where they can't uh, see colors very well and they they need more contrast in in the app. Uh, there are people that have trouble with motion. So like the home screen, you know how that uh, kind of shifts around when you shift your phone a little bit to give that little parallaxing 3D effect. That That can make people kind of sick and... It's hard for them to use your the device at that point, so you, there's an option for that. But again, that's another thing where you just need to kind of test. 
but I guess maybe if you had some custom animations, maybe you'd want to check to see if that reduced motion was on and be not so animated. And uh, probably one of the big ones is uh, there's a lot of people that that really can't see at all, but there's a, a f even greater amount of people that just have a little bit of trouble seeing. You know, they can see a little bit. If they bump up the font size a lot, they can see things. They get their phone screen real close to them, and then they can make out what's going on. And Apple in iOS 7, wasn't that, where they introduced dynamic text? So a user can bump up their font to a way huge size and still see the app without trying to do like the, the zoom in. And that can throw off your layouts if you're not careful. Yeah, you, you have to do a little bit of extra work to get that, that stuff working. So if you have a text-heavy app, it's probably worthwhile to spend some time on that. Uh, but I, I remember showing just the options for this to my mother and my mother-in-law, and they were like, this is the coolest thing ever. <laughs> it's like a whole new device. Yeah, I knew somebody who she would really bump up the font size on messages and stuff. And it was, it was like looking at a, a kid's reading book, like preschoolers book, but that's what she needed to be able to read it easily. And so with that one, I think if you have your app already localized into some languages that use longer forms for words, you're going to do okay. Or at least if you do this, then you're prepared to do some localization like in for German, for instance, or Russian where small phrases in English are paragraphs. But, but yeah, the main one though is definitely voiceover. That's probably the one that people hit the most when they do accessibility. Yeah. So let's kind of go over some of the things you have to consider if you're going to add voiceover into an app. Yeah, so the main, one of the main things is that the screen reader, it's not really a screen reader for, per se, like a PC screen reader, but the OS will go through your app from uh, left to right, top to bottom. And as you, you can do these left-right swipes to go to the next control. And then what happens is when, you, when the accessibility focus goes to the next element, It'll then read the accessibility hint or the accessibility title on there, and then if there's an actual hint, it'll read that hint as well. So you might have like mail, for instance. You'll swipe through. It'll say the subject, and then maybe the hint will be sent on this date or received on such and such date by so and so. Um, that's very useful when. You want to present a lot of information to the user, but don't want to weigh them down with having to swipe through a lot of fields. Uh, we use that a lot. Yeah. I think the big takeaway is that instead of you know, tapping on different elements in the screen, the user is using gestures to, to toggle between different controls on the screen or through different pages. 
So it, it's a completely different interaction. And, and yeah. gestures mean something completely different in that context. Oh, definitely. There's a lot. There's a lot of accessibility gestures, and I know I know just a few of them. But it's enough to get around. And those accessibility labels are useful for something other than than UI testing. <laughs> yeah, that always worries me when people use those accessibility labels for UI testing. I I wonder if that's going to inhibit. Uh, voiceover support well it, it seems like they should kind of complement each other and you have you know good descriptive uh, accessibility labels and, and hints and stuff and that makes it easy to a test your app and for vision impaired people to use it is well, that not what actually happens in reality I would I would hope that that's the case but you know us being programmers we like short terse names for things and maybe you put accessibility title and call that say label 10 and you know that in your uh, automation script you can find label 10 real easy versus uh, some random subject field that that would definitely be a detriment yeah i can see that being bad although i think one thing to note is that since they're hearing all of these labels read out, you you do what kind of want to stray from really long labels when you're doing voiceover notes because it'll take users forever to kind of get around your up. So so a terse label is good. It just needs to actually be descriptive and not just like a convenience for your UI testing tests that you're doing. Yeah, and I know we ran into one thing at work where there were abbreviations and the OS will just read that abbreviation. They'll say like, if it's ounces, they'll say, Oh, Oz or OZ or inches will be I N or something like that. So if you need that kind of uh, specific formatting, you have to code that up yourself. Uh, Things like social security numbers, or zip codes, it'll read the zip code as like four thousand five hundred whatever. Oh. <laughs> yeah, instead of four five, whatever. So those types of things you you need to actually add a little extra to the accessibility label. Makes sense. Something else to keep in mind with the with the accessibility labels and hints is those are localizable strings as well. So. Um, if you're supporting other languages, you need to consider that. Yeah, it's it's not good to just hard code it. But right. for the most part, if your data is, say, coming from some content source that's already localized, you're going to not have to worry about it too much. I think another thing that makes it hard is that that left to right, top to bottom order is based off of the frame of the view. So if visually you have something like a label that's got its text uh, center or vertically aligned, but its frame is above something to the to the left of it, 
then it's going to read that first label first or that bigger, taller label first, and then go back to the other labels. So you might get things out of order. And so there's a way that you can, uh, in a view, override a uh, one of the accessibility uh, one of the accessibility methods to say here are the accessibility elements in my in my subviews, and this is the order that they should be read in. And that's helpful. That's that's really what you need to be able to to provide a good voiceover experience to your user. It's kind of like a tab index. Yeah, exactly. And another thing to consider is controls that aren't on screen or covered up by another view might be hidden visually, but they're not hidden to voiceover. That that is true. Uh, um, There is a method. So say you've got like a overlay that has some transparency to it. You can tell accessibility that this is a uh, container and it won't read the things behind it. So that's a nice quick shortcut around that. I know when we were first trying it at work, we thought, oh man, we're going to have to go and if accessibility is on and they show this sub view then we're going to have to programmatically loop through all these items in a collection view and, and setting their accessibility hidden to true. And it was going to be bad, but end up finding just this one method to set. Yeah, so if you're using the standard controls, for the most part, it's pretty easy to implement. But if you have a custom control, then you've got to do a little bit of extra work. And for that, Apple provides the UI accessibility action where you can support incrementing, decrementing, or swiping of a control to perform an action. So my my biggest holdup, and, and maybe you can help me solve this accessibility problem on the air, uh, has been trying to figure out how to get accessibility to work with choosing from a list of of something that's in a custom control. In my case, it's a bunch of cards. So is there a easy way to do that? Yeah, I believe you can use the UI accessibility action to pick from a list. Okay. So is that, it, I is won't that say newer? Th- is that existing? It's been there for a while? It's been there for a little while. I, okay. I don't honestly know how long, but it's been there for a little while. The last time I looked, the, my big holdup was you had to supply basically a, a rect for every item that you were choosing from in your list. I don't know is if that's still the case, but basically it was kind of a pain to try to figure out where the the points that signify these items in my custom OpenGL view were in their UI kit coordinates. Yeah, the uh UI accessibility custom action that's been available since eight. Okay, I haven't looked since eight. Maybe yeah. I'll check that out. And honestly, there, there's, it was great to start with, but Apple year after year has been adding a lot of new features to accessibility, and they do outline them in the WWDC videos every year. 
Uh, I know uh, two years ago I was looking at it and going, oh, man, I wish I could use this, but we have to support iOS 6. So 7 added a lot of nice features. And this year's WWDC, not maybe not surprisingly, but they covered accessibility on the watch. And you find a lot of similar conventions that are on the phone. They go over to the watch. But uh, there are a few exceptions. They use the digital crown for a lot of things. Uh, zooming and panning, I think they use the digital crown for. But for the most part, it's it's pretty similar. So if you get good at doing access voiceover accessibility on your main app, then it's pretty much a no-brainer to do it on your watch app too. It's pretty cool. Yeah, I was I was surprised when I I read it that they actually even had accessibility baked into 1.0 for their watch. Well, with the Taptic engine, it's definitely seems like it would have a a big play in that space because you can get these this other type of feedback that isn't necessarily audible in terms of like walking directions it can indicate left or right turns just by by a tap on your wrist yeah I still haven't figured out what the heck those mean (laughs) have you tried that yet Alex Uh, no I I haven't had my watch for as long as you have um I have turned directions on and used the map app, my watch, while I'm driving. So it is kind of it's kind of weird to have the tap on the wrist right before you're supposed to make a turn. <laughs> uh, like but I can definitely see if right there. Yeah, I can definitely see if if it made you more mobile, you would learn what those taps mean very quickly. Yeah, true. It's very true. The one I learned to recognize recently was, hey, I'm going into low power mode because my battery is drained. (laughs) (laughs) I was getting that like every day, 6 p.m., 3 p.m. I have not installed beta uh, watchOS 2 yet, Uh, so I've been pretty good on battery life, better than I thought I would. Oh, yeah, one was very good. Yeah, two not so much. We'll see if it gets fixed in some of these subsequent beta betas. I assume it will. So, yeah. Any anything else about voiceover? You know, some tips and tricks, perhaps. Oh man, there's a a ton of tips and tricks. <clears throat> I think one th- one main thing though is you might think you've done a good job, but you really need to hand your phone over to somebody who's vision impaired. Because I know I spent at work at least a few weeks working on some accessibility things, voiceover accessibility, and happened to run into a blind person that I knew and handed her my phone, and uh, I felt so bad afterwards because I thought I did such a good job, but it uh, had a long ways to go. 
but and I think it, it's definitely difficult to get right and and make it efficient. Charles Perry's done a couple of good presentations on accessibility and has some good hints along those lines. Yeah, there there are some uh, like quick quick turn on things like you can set up the home button for a triple tap and that will turn on the accessibility item of your choice. Uh, typically I use voiceover for that one and that works with the watch too. A, a triple tap on the digital crown will turn on voiceover as well. Hmm. Although it yeah. seemed a little slow when I tried it today. That's because you're on the beta though. Everything's kind of slow right now. Yeah. But uh, the other one would be, I think it's a triple tap with three fingers will turn on the screen curtain. So if you want to see what a blind person sees, turn on the screen curtain and voiceover and then try to navigate your app because it'll, it just gives a blank screen. It turns off the screen basically, except for the touch input. That just scares me thinking of trying to use a device like that. But <laughs> I mean, that's how a lot of people. They have, yeah, they have to, they have no other choice. An alternative to the triple tap on the home button, you can also use Siri to turn on and off voiceover. Oh, yeah. And an another thing, if, if you get stuck, you can actually enable the uh, voiceover and any other accessibility options on your phone while in inside of iTunes while it's plugged into your computer, which is good to know. Yeah. Yeah, if you turn it on in settings and don't enable the triple tap button and don't know about Siri, you have to learn voiceover pretty quick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, one gesture I found that was interesting was uh, I, I think it's with two fingers because most of the gestures are with two fingers, but you make a Z motion on the screen, and that's basically doing a swipe back. Yeah, and it, it'll also uh, dismiss modals as well. So that was pretty cool. We have a custom modal implementation at work for one of our, part of our app, and I ended up putting that in there because we didn't have a actual dismiss button and didn't have a great way of showing the user or telling the user how to close the, the modal, but that one works. It's pretty easy to implement too. And I believe there's a is modal method on the protocol if you're implementing custom components. Yeah, there's also a uh, like an accessibility dismiss uh, action, but there's a there's a method. It's one of the accessibility protocol methods that if your view, actually a view or a view controller, because it it searches up the responder chain. And uh, if one of the if it finds that method implemented after doing that dismiss gesture, it'll call that uh, method in your code. So then you can do your actual dismissal from there. Oh, another thing is uh, if you hate that Siri, that robotic Siri voice, you can download more um, high resolution voices. They yeah, like they can be Alex. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's I'm the a fan of Alex. That's the British one, right? 
Uh, I don't think it's British. I think it's a. Uh, I think that one might be American, but I'm not certain. It sounds like yeah. a snobby American, maybe. <laughs> There's a male one, and he's got kind of a British accent. But then, yeah, there are uh, higher res Siri voices that you can download. So the the Apple Watch accessibility option from this year, it was a little bit dry, uh, but it did have a fair amount of good content. Uh, but definitely, I'd say that 2013 and 2014 uh, talks on accessibility would be good resources, very good resources. Uh, there's still no substitute for getting a user to actually test it or even closing your own eyes and looking around your app. I would imagine you probably know your app too well to to get a good view of it, though, wouldn't you? Yeah, and, you know, with with user engagement and apps being, you know, in measured in seconds rather than minutes or hours, I would think it'd be hard for a, a vision-impaired user to really get acquainted with your app unless they have just a core set of apps and you're one of them. Or unless they've, you know, your app has kick-ass accessibility support. Right. So it is. A, there are um, volunteer organizations that will test apps for you. Um, some of them will do it for free, and others will do it for a nominal fee. Uh, there, there's something like six million people in the U.S. alone that are classified as legally blind. So, maybe getting one of your friends with thick glasses to take his glasses off and using your app for a while would work too. But six million, though, that's a that's a large chunk of people. And that's just the U.S. alone, so it's it's definitely not something to shake off. I'll take another six million users. That sounds good to me. Mm-hmm. Another six million. I'll take six million to begin with. Well, I don't have six million, <laughs> but I'll take six million in addition to what I have now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and that's another thing. Uh, the vision impaired community is very vocal about people who support them, so they will help get the word out about your app if it's good it's done well nothing like free marketing there is not (laughs) well i think that's about all the time we have uh this week so uh why don't you guys tell us where we can find you on the internet i am sam quarter on twitter i'm at aj robinson on twitter Argo. So the podcast is shared inst on Twitter. Also, show notes for this episode will be on our website, sharedinstance.com. And as always, we do appreciate any open letters to Taylor Swift as well as ratings and reviews on on iTunes. <laughs>